welcome to this week's Manchester Green New Deal podcast. I'm your host, Alex King, and this week we have Manchester's very finest theatre technician by day, climate dissident by night, Andrew Glassford. How are you, Andrew? I'm good, man. Um, I'm currently, um, I guess, bringing shame to my climate credentials as I am working in the UAE, having flown 3,000 miles to work in schools for six weeks. So You'll be planting to... trees for the rest <laughs> of your life. Yeah, sure. I, uh, well... I'm not sure that'll be enough uh, for the damage it's done for coming here and going back. But other than that, I'm great, mate. How are you? I'm fine. Yeah, I'm good. I'm just keeping tight in Cholton here. It's getting very cold here. Is it still pretty hot in Dubai? It is 39 degrees most days. And this is it is going into winter as well. So yeah, if you're here in September, it's like pushing over 40. And they seem to have this innate desire to have like green lawns everywhere, just of grass. And you just see them like, there's just... Um, like water being spilt everywhere <laughs> to try and keep all these lawns alive. And you're like, oh my God, what are you doing? So um, gross, yeah. I look forward to um, explaining myself on another podcast to our listeners of why I'm a shill. <laughs> yeah, well, it sounds like everything there is being greenwashed as well. You sent us pictures on the WhatsApp recently where it was saying green natural gas-powered taxis. Yes, yes. Um, so all the taxis in Abu Dhabi... Um, are powered by gas and they're very proud to have all natural gas taxis that have butterflies and lovely green pictures of forests on them and then everyone drives at like 200 kilometers an hour efficiency is not really their bag over here but um, let's crack on with the show <laughs> love it love it yes let's do that and incidentally this show is on the subject of energy it warms your homes it powers your vehicles and it's making headlines energy prices are spiraling and energy companies are going bust in their droves. And against this backdrop of energy crisis, national governments are grappling with the knotty task of, of powering their economies cheaply and sustainably. Here in the UK, for example, the government's published a slew of strategy documents laying out plans to decarbonise. And all of these questions around energy have global repercussions. Our geopolitics increasingly governed by the ebb and flow of energy across continents. Most notably, for example, Russia's alleged gas supply squeezes on Europe. So what's causing the energy crisis? Is it connected to the climate crisis? Is the government doing enough about them? Can green energy be affordable? And finally, what kind of politics does energy help create? And what limits does it impose? On the show this week, to help us unpack all of this, we're delighted to welcome Jan Rosnov. Jan is an honorary research associate at Oxford University's Environmental Change Institute, an associate fellow at the University of Sussex and at the Free University of Berlin. Jan also sits on the board of the European Council for an Energy Efficient Economy and is a member of the steering committee of the Coalition for Energy Savings and the Build Upon Two Advisory Board. And last but certainly not least, Jan is a climate advisor to the government's Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. Jan, a lot of accolades, a warm welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. It's been, it's been a delight to actually get you on the show. I write for Low Carbon Homes about domestic retrofit. And whenever I'm researching pieces about energy for another outlet, you're, and I'm asking for experts in the field, yours is always the first to come up. So you're, you come highly recommended. Now, it says on your website that when you were eight years old, you founded an environmental group in your local town. What was that advocating and what impact did that have on you? 
Interesting question. I got asked the same question actually on a on a live BBC interview. Uh, I think it was um, two weeks ago, and I didn't expect that question at all. I thought I would be asked about the government's new strategy on heat and buildings, which I think we will talk about later. <clears throat> but I I give you the same answer. I mean the you know my motivate. I was eight years, as you say. My motiv main motivation really was to do something much more about the local issues um, around the environment. I yeah you know, I didn't have the knowledge and awareness of all the things going on in the world um, at the time. But I had a very keen awareness of uh, you know, local issues. So there you know, just a lot of uh, rubbish being thrown around. Um, you know, that was a major issue that um, I was concerned about. And and also, um, I think just giving more opportunity to, um, uh, you know, to the other species around us to, to um, um, have a habitable space to live in. Um, so we, we focus very much on improving the local environment by you know, collecting rubbish, by um, uh, you know, putting in place um, devices for birds where they can build their nests in and things like that. So that was um, you know, really localized um, sort of uh, issues and focus, um, which got me started to work on environmental issues. Brilliant. It's clearly had a lasting impression then. So as I mentioned in the introduction, I think the first thing that we were going to talk about is the energy crisis. What is causing that? I mean, when you say energy crisis, I assume you refer to the current spike that we have seen in both gas, but also in electricity prices. And the reason for why we see that um, are quite complicated, um, and you, but you can break them down and make it a bit more um, simple to understand. I mean, the main reason for why we've seen gas prices go up really have to do a lot with uh, economic recovery after um, the um, you know, COVID pandemic. So there has been a very high demand, for example, for um, what is called liquefied natural gas, uh, LNG, uh, in Asia, uh, specifically China. Um, and higher demand, of course, also means higher prices because um, at the same time as demand has shot up, uh, supply has not. Um, and you already referred in the introduction to the constraints in gas supply from Russia. You know, whether or not that's politically motivated, it, that's not my area of expertise. But we have certainly seen a reduction in the amount of gas that is being supplied by Russia. You can simply see that in the numbers. Uh, then again, um, it you know, reduces supply um, in, in, in the same, uh, at the same time when you have a, a, an increase in demand. Um, and also, um, you know, we have less storage um, than we had before. So in the past, um, specifically in the UK, we had a lot more storage for gas. Uh, and currently, um, that is no longer the case. Um, you're the last uh, sort of very large uh, gas storage facility uh, on Bacentrica was shut down in 2017. Uh, and what we have now with gas in the UK is much more what people would call a just-in-time supply. Um, so gas is being um, you know, bought when it's needed, but we don't store much of it, um, which of course then leaves you exposed um, to price rises, um, which feed through directly to consumers much more quickly than if you had a buffer, you know, where you could purchase gas when it's cheaper and isolate yourself um, from the volatility a little bit more. Um, so it's it's um, that's kind of the third factor. So I mentioned you know, higher demand because of COVID uh, recovery. Um, you know, constrained supply, for example, because of Russia delivering less and less storage. Um, so these these factors um, drive up the, the price of gas, not just in the UK, but internationally. So when you look at gas markets uh, all around the world, you will see that gas prices are on the up, not just in yeah. the UK, yeah. but also elsewhere. 
Um, and then that drives up electricity prices um, as for the simple reason that in many markets, gas is setting the price. It's, it's, it's what's called it's on the margin. You know, it provides that last kilowatt hour of electricity that we need. Uh, and that sets the price um, for electricity, um, which makes electricity more expensive for everyone. Just to follow up on um, that storage point. So you said um, a large storage facility was closed down in 2017. What, what was the, the logic and the reasoning behind that? Was there like an outlook of saying, we're moving to this just in time kind of logistics and we won't be a problem? Or was it already as we were seeing a move away from gas or was that like the intended idea? I don't know the history of um, why exactly the facility was was closed down. Um, it's a number of factors that probably played into that. Um, but I think we've seen that in other supply chains as well. You know, this move towards just-in-time um, supply chains. Um, and, of course, um, overall, it reduces costs, right? If you have less infrastructure yeah. that you have to maintain, that reduces the cost um, of gas, um, but of course, it also leaves you exposed to more risk, um, which is what we've seen um, right now with the um, with the gas price crisis. And you can see that in the data. So gas prices in the UK have risen much faster and sharp, more sharply than uh, in some of the other European countries. But that's also for you know, the other factors at play here. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but that is clearly one of the reasons. Yeah. And you've written a lot about the difference in the levies between gas and electricity. Could you explain to our listeners why gas in the UK particularly has been so cheap up until very recently? Well, gas was historically cheap um, because the UK had quite large domestic resources. Uh, remember, you know, the dash for gas, um, where we moved away from coal um, to gas, which was a, you know, a, a, a long process, um, but it essentially meant um, a, you know, it's a very significant shift in, in how we um, both heat our homes, but also how we make electricity. Um, you know, coal was the main source of electricity and also home heating. Um, that is fundamentally shifted um, towards gas, uh, which um, happened because you know, we were able to use up um, a significant amount of the domestic resource that we have in the North Sea. Uh, so that's why gas was relatively cheap in the UK, because we had our own resources. Uh, and electricity has always been more expensive for a variety of reasons. I mean, one reason is that if you make electricity from fossil fuels, you always lose um, a significant part of the energy in the process. Mm. So if you, you know, run a generator, um, you always um, have about at least 40 percent, often more of the energy that's simply wasted in the form of um, heat that ex you know, just goes right into the atmosphere. So you can only extract useful energy um, up to maybe 60% if you have a very efficient gas power plant. But in the past, it was often less than 40%. Um, so that's one reason why the final product, electricity, um, is more expensive. You know, you, you put in more energy to get the same amount of energy out of it um, compared to, to just using gas directly. Um, that, 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 is, that is one of the factors. And you need to build the infrastructure. You need to build a power plant that actually makes electricity, uh, which adds to the cost and you need the distribution grid and the transmission grid uh, in addition to that. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why electricity always has been more expensive. But the point of levies, um, uh, which you alluded to in your question, Alex, um, is, is very important too. So about 23% of the cost of an average household um, electricity bill is related to so-called uh, levies, which are used to pay for a lot of the decarbonization policies. 
you know, for example, feed-in tariffs, which is, you know, a, a basically like a scheme where you get rewards for having solar PV on your rooftop and you get paid for the electricity you generate. You know, those costs come out of electricity bills and are being paid by a mechanism called the feed-in tariff, uh, which has been put onto electricity bills. You may also think about some of the energy efficiency programs we had in this country since the early 1990s, also largely been funded via electricity bills. Uh, and um, you know, the renewable obligation that was imposed on electricity suppliers requiring to increase the share of renewables also falls into that category. So there's a whole bunch of policies that fall under this category of levies. Uh, and on gas, it's only about 2%. So you have 23% of the total cost of electricity for households is is based on levies and for gas it's only two percent and of course again that drives um, a dis disparity between the cost of electricity versus the cost of gas and it's a political choice you know that 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 is not something that is based on just the kind of engineering and the physics and the cost of the fuel this is purely um, based on political choices that we make fascinating so you're saying that it's not so much a question of physics as it is a question of politics that there's such a big difference between gas and electricity levies and i think that's something that we'll come back to at, towards the end of the show when we talk about the politics of decarbonization just to circle back to the energy crisis would you say that the energy crisis and the climate crisis are interlinked in a sense or would you say they're two separate crises that just are coinciding to create a perfect storm as it were they clearly are interlinked. Um, I mean, one linkage that I see is, um, you know, the climate crisis highlights the need to move away uh, from fossil fuels um, and not much faster than we previously thought because we, we have more scientific evidence that suggests that we need to move faster. But also the, um, the, you know, the energy price increase that we've now witnessed just highlights how um, vulnerable we are um, to global um, energy markets. Um, and again, to me, that suggests that um, we need to move faster. We need to move away from fossil fuels faster and reduce our dependency on fossil fuels, also by reducing um, energy demand, you know, for energy efficiency. I'm sure we talk about that a bit later in the conversation. Uh, but those those are the two main levers, how you can move away from relying on fossil fuels. Um, and the effect is, I think, you know, reduce carbon emissions, but also less volatility in energy prices because there's less dependency on fossil fuels, uh, and this is something that um, uh, you know positively actually the, the the main institutions dealing with these issues, the International Energy Agency, but also the European Commission, um, the, the the government department in the UK dealing with energy base have all said um, the main response to the energy price crisis um, is exactly what it is said is to do more renewables, reduce energy demand for energy efficiency, um, rather than just increase supply. Uh, or subsidize fossil energy um, and to keep prices low. Um, that's a short-term solution and it's not sustainable in the long run. Kind of talking about the UK's um, kind of energy mix at the moment, there's been a lot of like a talk over the last year and a bit of like there being full days of where the UK's power supply is 100% renewable. Um, I'm wondering if you could give like a brief outline of what you think like a sustainable re renewable energy mix would be for the UK? Like what would be the kind of the main kind of productions we would have running for it? Because a lot of people seem to think that we can't really use solar here that effectively because, you know, classically English weather is terrible. But is, it, is that the case? Could it be a big part of what we need in the future? No, it's uh, wind and solar will certainly provide, um, in my view, the, the majority of electricity that's being generated 
um, by the mid 2030s. I mean, there is a plan um, to de fully decarbonize the power sector by 2035. That was announced, I think, in October um, by Boris Johnson and confirmed in the net zero strategy. What exactly the mix will be in 2035, nobody really knows. Um, but it's very clear that solar and wind will provide the bulk of the electricity that's being generated uh, and probably more wind than solar because we have a lot of potential offshore, also onshore in the UK for wind. Um, but there's also huge um, potential for solar, even um, in the rainy and cloudy weather we have in the UK. There's still enough um, sunshine um, that can be harvested and converted to electricity. Um, the interesting question is, I think not so much whether we can cover an entire day with renewables. We've demonstrated that already. I mean, in Scotland, um, where you have a lot of wind, you regularly exceed 100% uh, electricity um, uh, production with renewables and you have to export into other parts of the UK um, because you know Scotland can satisfy its its, its own electricity needs entirely with with the with the wind generation there yeah. uh, I think the interesting question is more how do we deal uh, with those periods when there's low winds or no wind at all when it's cloudy uh, and it's cold mm. um, so you have um, uh, you, know, you, you essentially have a situation where you have higher energy demand because it's cold and people use more energy, um, especially as we move away from gas towards maybe using heat pumps in, in homes uh, and you have less renewable generation. Um, so that in combination creates uh, more difficult situations. And that's where really, I think, um, most of the innovation needs to happen. Currently, on those days, we would run gas power plants um, right. to fill the gaps um, uh, in the past, there was a lot of coal, but that's going to get phased out. I think in 2024, the last power, coal power station in the UK uh, is scheduled to be to be shut down. Um, but the real um, key to solving the puzzle is to yeah, you know, how do we address the, um, the those those days when when you have not enough renewable generation, uh, higher demand than usual, um, and that that's going to be um, more difficult. Uh, there are solutions for this, of course, um, and um, the way how this needs to be done ultimately will be, um, first of all, to have more demand flexibility. I mean, yeah. you, you can think yeah. of, of batteries. Um, uh, actually, electric vehicles can store more electricity than um, a household needs for several days. You know, that, that you have huge wow. storage potential there, potentially. Uh, you could also think about um, using um, you know, green gases such as um, green hydrogen potentially for making electricity during during those periods and replace the fossil gas in the plants that we currently use. Large scale energy storage, there could be opportunities there. Um, but it's challenging. You know, there's no mm. question about this. This has never been done. It's very challenging to do. Uh, it requires an awful lot of investment and innovation. Um, but that's where we are. That's where we're headed. You know, we, 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 there's no way um, around that. We, that's what we need to achieve. Um, and that's because electricity will also be used in much larger quantities. We will probably yeah. have to double, yeah. maybe even triple the amount of electricity that we use. And if we don't succeed in decarbonizing electricity, we then also don't succeed in decarbonizing all the other sectors where we're going to use more electricity. Now we're we're very big on retrofit on this show, as myself and some of the colleagues are, are retrofitters. And I guess kind of with this, you're talking about that there has to be like a change on the demand side as well as the supply side to kind of make this whole thing, you know, sustainable for the future. Um, I believe there is some green uh, green hydrogen plants working on the Orkney Islands at the moment that are fully being supplied by wind to try and break um, what what are they breaking methane down into hydrogen? I believe. 
or something similar. Um, is that what you kind of mean about green hydrogen being spread out across the UK? Would it be a case of having renewable energy power these things, and would would we use the infrastructure that's in the ground already? And is is that the direction of like the private energy companies at the moment? No, I think I know where you're getting at. I think you, you need to distinguish um, where the hydrogen is being used. Um, I, I mean, the um, uh, you know, if we stick with the electricity system for now, um, there clearly is um, there's widespread agreement, um, although not everybody agrees on it. But there is widespread, fairly widespread agreement that hydrogen. Um, uh, could play a major role in in fueling power stations that are you know, to essentially offer you the dispatchable power generation that you can dispatch as a system operator when you yeah. need it. Yeah. Um, that is zero carbon, uh, which you know with wind and solar they're not dispatchable. You know they they generate when the wind blows or when the sun is shining, but they're not dispatchable. You can't just turn them on and off. Whereas you can turn on and off a, a thermal plant that uses. Uh, green hydrogen. Mind you, it has never been demonstrated um, uh, to run a hydrogen plant 100% on hydrogen. So we still right. have a lot of work to to do. But companies like Siemens are already working, um, you know, on that, and there are pilot projects underway. Um, but we don't know yet exactly um, to what extent that is feasible. We haven't seen that being done at scale. Mm. Um, the other um uh part that you referred to in your question i think was the gas grid so that's mm. an entirely different issue um yeah um, i think that's where it's much more problematic uh, to use hydrogen uh, simply because the amount of renewable um generation capacity you would need to heat all our homes with green hydrogen is absolutely phenomenal yes um yes. and the um chief executive uh, chris stark of the committee on climate change uh, has said that we would need to increase the capacity of offshore wind by a factor of 30 beyond what's already being planned just to generate the hydrogen um, to provide enough gas um, that we can burn uh, to heat our homes. Um, so so there's simply not enough capacity to do this. Um, some people say we can just import the hydrogen. I think that's very risky because um, you don't know whether that's going to be available. There's going to be competition for it. Um, uh, and there are better alternatives. I mean, that's ultimately where I think I um, believe because of we have more efficient ways of doing this, mm. that are less mm. resource intensive, less costly, that hydrogen um, in the distribution grid would play a very, very minor role. Um, and most of, of, of the distribution grid for gas would probably have to be decommissioned uh, and, right. and will no longer right. be useful. Um, uh, and and that, that's, I think, when you look at any of the scenarios that pr credibly look at net zero, you will see a massive decline in gas use, uh, which in turn means that we have to roll back some of the distribution grid um, uh, that, that um, uh, needs to be considered. So to put it simply, there could be a place, a role for hydrogen as a key ingredient for areas like power, industry, transport, but not for refitting the grid infrastructure to homes specifically? Not not in my view, no. I mean, there, there are um, different views out there, mainly um, by people who work um, in the gas industry. I mean, they have been very vocal um, in pushing this idea that we can replace fossil gases with green gases, not just green hydrogen, but more blue hydrogen, which is made from um, you know fossil gas uh, using carbon capture and storage. Uh, so those claims have been made, um, but most independent um, analysts, most of the independent studies um, have concluded that hydrogen is not going to play a major role 
in, in, in heating simply because of the economics and the inefficiency of hydrogen. Mm. Um, and, you know, those, in, those include studies by the International Energy Agency, for example, um, but also several universities in the UK, the European Commission. Um, so I haven't seen a single authoritative independent study that has come out and said hydrogen is the way to do this. This is the, the cheapest option that we have that would lower emissions the fastest. Um, yeah, that, that evidence doesn't exist simply. So I, I think it's unlikely that this will happen. And when you look at the, the current policies and politics around it, um, I think it doesn't look like there is anything firm coming out in the next five years that will kind of indicate that hydrogen will happen at a large scale for heating. Uh, remains to be seen what the government decides in 2026 when they want to make a strategic decision about the future use of the gas grid. You mentioned decarbonisation. I'd like to kind of stick on that with one moment as we kind of talk about production. I was at a panel at Labour conference last month, which had uh, Alan Whitehead, who's Labour's shadow minister for a Green New Deal, and there was a director from Drax there talking about their BEX system, which is, uh, for those that don't know about it, is the bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. The simplest way, as I understand how that works, is that they they burn wood to fuel uh, power stations and then capture the carbon afterwards. A couple of questions, if you know anything about this. One, am I correct in saying that? Because I can't seem to work out how you can have a sustainable way of burning wood and <laughs> like keeping that going as energy generation. And, and two, their plan is to store the carbon in the North Sea. That also feels like it would have quite a short time frame on that, depending on how the you know geophysics works. So do you know much about the, the BEC system that Drax are proposing? I don't know specifically which technology um, is installed um, in Drax, but um, I, I, I think the, um, the idea to use biomass for power generation is deeply problematic um, for various reasons. Um, I mean, one is is kind of obvious. Yeah, you know, air pollution, um, you know, burn, burning biomass results, um, you know, in particulate emissions um, and in other air pollutants. And um, but the more fundamental reason is is uh, the carbon emissions of biomass uh, are substantial. Uh, so Chatham House um, launched a report um, three weeks ago, and I was speaking at the launch event about this, uh, and this was very much looking at the. Um, life cycle impacts of burning biomass for power generation. Um, and the, the problem with that is that um, you know, it takes a long time for, for trees to grow, basically, and recapture yes. the carbon. And every tree we burn today, uh, you know, the carbon is emitted straight away, just as if you were going to burn coal. Mm. Um, and in some cases, um, you know, because, of, because you changed the ecosystem from what used to be a forest um, to something else, you might also have some some methane leakage uh, coming out of the soil. Um, so there are some other emissions associated with that. But the time it takes to then get the carbon back by uh, you growing new trees can take a very long time, certainly several decades. Um, and we need to reduce emissions in the next 10, 20 years. Um, you know, if, if in 100 years the emissions are kind of recaptured and back in the trees, um, that that you know that 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 is not helpful for the next sort of ten twenty yeah. years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I think that that's one of the um, the sort of problems with I think backs um, where uh, it's based on woody biomass. I mean there there might be um, yeah there would be sustainable forms of biofuels if you think of wood residue for example that would otherwise just go um, to, you know, to to landfill. Um, burning right. that um, right. is is less problematic. Uh, or capturing methane emissions from landfill sites 
uh, and burning that to make um, electricity is 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 less problematic. Um, but using using woody biomass um, for power generation at scale is problematic, as the Chatham House report clearly clearly shows. And then the second element, you know, the carbon capture and storage. Um, you know, the technology exists, of course, um, and and it it has been done in many places. But we don't know yet um, to what extent is it reliable. Can it really store um, you know carbon emissions for hundreds of years? Mm. Will there be some leakage? Um, there are clearly risks associated with that. Uh, I am not an expert in in, in geosciences and carbon capture and storage, um, but I would certainly be skeptical about claims that. Uh, there will be zero percent leakage and carbon can be captured for hundreds of years to come. It's interesting to hear about you know, the potentials of biomass from methane from landfills and, and wood resin. Would it be safe to say that biomass wouldn't be able to make up a, a kind of substantive quantity of our energy mix in the future? No, there would not be enough. Um, and there have been several studies that have quantified how much land you would need uh, to supply um, you know, certain percentages of our energy needs with biomass. Um, so it's limited. There's also competition, um, of course, with food production, agricultural yeah, land. Of course. Um, yeah, of course. And there's competition with, um, you know, what is called rewilding, where, you know, we might want to actually um, not um, harvest any wood or have agricultural land, but simply you know, allow nature to, to re- recover and, and, and forest to regrow. Um, so we we don't want to compete um, with agricultural uses and and rewilding projects um, too much. So there's there are limits uh, to what extent we can use uh, biofuels, um, whether it's biomass or other forms of biofuels, um, and we need to be aware of that. So there's a, I think there is there are ways of making sustainable biofuels, but they, it's it's a small portion of our over energy needs, and they need to be used where it makes most sense. So where, and that is where you have fewer other alternatives, um, where it's more difficult to use electricity, for example, from solar and wind. Mm. Uh, that's where uh, there, there, there's a role um, you know, for biofuels, uh, but not um, in areas where there are alternatives. Yeah. Uh, and we yeah. need to be mindful of that. So Jan, we think this is a really timely episode because as I mentioned in the introduction, the UK government strategizing for decades to come on how to decarbonize the country released a bunch of strategies most recently the heat and building strategy that's something you've been commenting on quite prolifically over the last few weeks what are your thoughts about that strategy did it provide any sufficient energy efficiency measures and were you happy with its relative commitment towards heat pumps over hydrogen until at least 2026 like you mentioned um, I mean, one one thing that clearly stands out in the strategy is is the ambition um, to phase out all fossil heating by 2035. Uh, it's an ambition. It's an aim. Those are the two words used in the strategy itself. And when I uh, asked the government minister um, during a public debate whether this is a law or a regulation or is it just an ambition, it was confirmed it's an ambition. But it's still important because it means that the government can be held to account um, around that, and we'll need to put in place policies that deliver uh, on that ambition. Yeah, uh, and and that's that's an important snap. So there's a, there's a there's a bold kind of overarching target in there, which is very positive. There's a commitment to reform um, levies on electricity, um, with the aim of making things like heat pumps more attractive. So that's very very um, laudable. But we need to see the detail. You know, the the strategy doesn't say 
how it's going to get reformed. It just says that there is an intention to do this and there will be uh, you know, further um, calls for evidence, consultations and things like that. Uh, so next year, there will be a decision uh, on this and we need to see what that looks like. But the direction is is positive, and this is the first time the government is looking at this uh, seriously. Um, the the other element that's in the strategy is, and this was reported widely on in the media in in the UK, is the five thousand pounds for a heat pump. So if you want to switch out your gas boiler with with a heat pump, you get five thousand um, pounds. That is, um, uh, yeah, it's it's a it's it's a much needed funding mechanism. But when you look at the details, it's about thirty thousand units per year that this will support. Right. Um, it's 90,000 units over three years, so it's about 30,000 units per year. Uh, and we currently install about 1.7 million gas boilers a year. So just to put that into perspective, uh, it's a very small share um, of heating system installations that this will support. Isn't uh, the uh, average cost of a heat pump as well like £20,000? Well, to... Nine to 12, I think. Um, it depends uh, what kind of heat pump. A right. ground source heat right. pump oh, yeah. um, you know, is closer to, to sort of fifteen to 20000 um, but an air source heat pump, um, you can get, um, you know, for less than ten thousand pounds. It depends really on on the kind of, t- of heat pump you want, on the on the size of your property, on the heat demand. There's lots of factors at play. But you know, air source heat pump about ten thousand at the moment, and ground source it's probably more fifteen to twenty thousand. And they're supposed to be installed after you've retrofitted a house, right? You, there's no point. They don't work as effectively in a leaky house, energy efficiently speaking. Well, ideally, you would you would um, uh, you know, have already a well insulated um, building when you install a heat pump, but that is the case for any heating system. Um, you know, it's yeah. it's uh, it's been interesting to see. True. I think Karen and Lucas um, wrote something on Twitter that was uh, went viral. I think she said it's uh, heating heating a leaky uh, inefficient house uh, with a heat pump is like putting tea into a, a teacup with cracks in it, um, <laughs> and. And of course, that is the case, but it's also the case that if we heat a very leaky and efficient building uh, with fossil fuels, uh, that's even worse yes. because it yes. emits a lot more carbon. Um, so I think the argument um, that you can't heat uh, inefficient buildings with heat pumps or other renewable heating technologies is deliberately used um, by parts of the fossil fuel industry who discredit heat pumps. Um, whereas the argument should actually be that for any heating system, in order for it to operate efficiently and effectively, you want to have decent levels of insulation. And also we want to protect people from having to pay extortionate energy bills because they're wasting all their energy. So the, the case for energy efficiency, I think, can stand on its own independently of, of um, uh, you know, whether or not you have a heat pump. But it, yeah, it is right that it would operate more efficiently and effectively. And I would not advise people to, um, to, to install a heat pump before for doing some basic energy efficiency measures. Yeah, and you, you've, to- you've touched upon this in your previous answers about the the fact that, you know, the, the energy mix in 2035 is undecided, it's up for grabs, it's contestable. And equally, you've mentioned just now that there's been a lot of lobbying behind the scenes to muddy the waters around heat pumps. There's clearly a lot of politicking going ar- alongside these strategies. What interests do you think are at stake with decarbonisation in relation to grid infrastructure, you know, coming off, getting millions of homes off the off the grid, giving them heat pumps, why wouldn't certain interests want that? Well, there's there's there is certainly um, you know heavy lobbying going on, and there are very um, strong vested interests. I mean, the, the gas infrastructure that we've built 
in this country is vast. Um, more than 85% of all homes are connected to it. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's a huge asset um, that, that's been, been funded um, via, you know, custom energy bills and is now owned by private companies. Um, and clearly they have an interest in maintaining um, that infrastructure um, and avoiding it to become what is called a stranded asset, which makes mm. it useless because it no longer um, functions. Um, so they want to avoid that from happening. Um, and I understand that, you know, from their perspective, that makes a lot of sense. That's why we see the push for using um, you know, green and blue hydrogen and other gases in that infrastructure, because it would allow um, uh, you know, that, that infrastructure to be used continuously going forward. Um, you also have manufacturers of heating um, appliances uh, who very strongly um, make the case for a continuation of using a gas uh, for heating because it allows them to sell more um, ga you know, gas boilers, even modified gas boilers. You can you can have a, what is called a hydrogen ready gas boiler that is, is ready for hydrogen, but it's still a gas boiler and can also use uh, fossil gases. Uh, but it essentially allows them to continue to sell these appliances and devices. But on the other side, you of course also have strong interest in electrification. Um, uh, you know, you have you have um, some large electricity utilities who see opportunities in selling more electricity uh, and who will push electrification for that reason. Um, so you have vested interests on all sides of the debate. Um, the the least um, strong established industry is the heat pump industry in all of this yeah. because it's yeah. so small. Yeah. Um, but the big players really is is the gas industry. The appliance manufacturers of gases or gas boilers, um, and and also to some extent the electricity utilities. There's there's been quite a lot of literature written on what kind of politics energy creates. So back in you know carbon era UK, trade unions, coal trade unions had a lot of leverage in political power by their relation to the means of production. Since moving away from that, you know, that's all been outsourced to the Middle East in the form of oil, and that's kind of disempowered organized labor in this country. Thinking about it in those terms, the kinds of politics that it can create, do you, do you kind of see different visions of, of where these things can go, depending on how we decarbonize? So if maintaining the grid infrastructure versus electrification versus retrofit and heat pumps... Would you be able to shed any light on what kind of politics that creates? I mean, one of the interesting um, developments that we can see is 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 around decentralization as well. Uh, you know, in the past, the the energy system was built around um, centralized, very large scale um, public utilities. You know, they were put in charge of providing the energy that we all want and need. Um, and the, the, you know, the consumer at the other end is just receiving um, that energy and pays for it in some way. Um, but that is changing fundamentally already. And we're seeing um, a lot more people wanting to um, be active participants in it. And instead of just being consumers, being prosumers and you know, generating their own electricity. Prosumers. Um, <laughs> and, and, and you also have, um, I think, um, now with electric vehicles, um, the opportunity to provide services, you know, flexibility services to the grid. Uh, and I'm sure we will see um, business models that are structured around that, where if you as, a, as an end user, if you engage more actively with the energy system, 
that you will also be able um, to get some benefits for, for, for doing that. You're reducing carbon, reducing costs for everybody else. You will get some form of compensation for that. Uh, and I think there also is an interest in um, your community energy projects, of course, where um, you know if it's not just about you as an individual, but you could, for example, um, think of schemes where you trade electricities with your neighbors or you even have you know, jointly owned um, infrastructure, community infrastructure, um, you know, small solar um, uh, projects, for example, um, or even wind projects, um, where citizens pool money together and um, then, you know, essentially jo um, jointly um, own the infrastructure um, and, and reap the rewards that provides to the community. Uh, and there are examples of that as well. So I think there is an element in all of this of decentralization. So we had kind of centralization where you know, publicly owned utilities essentially controlled the energy infrastructure. Then we had a, a period of privatization, liberalization that kind of started in the late uh, 1980s. Um, and, and now I think we're moving more towards a process of increasing decentralization, uh, which is very interesting to observe, you know, and how that will unfold, nobody really knows. Mm. Um, but but there clearly is an element there um, uh, that moves away from that kind of centralized structure, um, uh, opening up opportunities um, that are more decentral uh, and more diverse and potentially more creative. That was a question I had for you, actually, on the subject of community energy schemes, because there's been some really interesting examples of that here in Greater Manchester, in Oldham, uh, and across the UK, places like Plymouth. And, you know, they deliver cheaper energy for the, loca the localities they're based in. It means that people own the local energy in infrastructure, like you say. And with ownership comes control, yes, but also awareness and engagement, a general cultural uh, attunement to energy and the environment, etc. So it seems to have really positive, tangible outcomes. But my question to you is, is, and I suppose it relates to what Andrew was asking about what an ideal mix, energy mix would look like for the UK. How much energy do you think we can generate from community energy schemes? Or does there need to be a complementary system in place to lend that system resilience and reliability and security and whatever else comes with that? Like what, how big a role can community energy really play realistically? I can't give you a percentage number, um, Alex, but um, <laughs> uh, I think I think the role is um, uh, is not insignificant, I would say. Um, uh, I mean, you can define it in terms of how much energy, or in this case, mainly electricity, um, it generates, you know, community energy projects generate. Or you could look at it um, from a different perspective, and that is... Um, I think um, and it also quite important the democratization of energy, um, which you know puts some of the the decision making power into the hands of citizens and makes them um, not just feel part of it, actually be part of the transition. Yeah, which has been very important in in continental Europe in places where you know there has have, has been maybe resistance in the past to installing renewables, um, but these community energy projects open up um, a way of uh, persuading communities that actually there could be real benefits to be had for them um, if if um, they joined in. Uh, so it was not just something that was done to people, but it was something that was offering opportunities um, for people to participate in. Um, so I think that's that's probably the more interesting 
um, angle to this. I think in terms of how much energy these projects can can generate, can provide, um, I, I think it's it's complementary role. Um, you know, a lot of the the um, energy that we will use will still continue to come you know, from things like large off offshore wind farms, utility scale solar farms. Um, uh, you know, there will be some dispatchable power that, that is needed. But community energy projects can be very complementary in this and they have some real benefits. I mean, if you have more decentralized, localized generation, this increases the resilience of the energy sector overall um you know it, it avoids um uh, you know blackouts um it, it it helps um to also bring the costs down for managing the grid um so there are there are some benefits that these projects um can provide um at the moment it's difficult to um uh, you monetize the, the the these benefits the wider benefit system benefits these community projects bring um and often um you know, these benefits are, are, are being absorbed by the wider energy system but not being rewarded um, at the level of the community. Um, so this is, this is a real challenge. Um, but I think they, they, they certainly play an important role. Uh, I don't believe that we can simply rely 100% on community energy projects um, to deliver all the energy we need. I don't think that's realistic um, uh, and it's not desirable either. I think there's a need for some centralized generation um, it depends on the right mix. Um, you, know, you want to have some community energy projects, um, some highly decentralized uh, projects at the individual level, and you want some centralized uh, generation around it. Uh, and clearly you need some infrastructure that is still centralized and centrally operated and controlled. Um, I don't think we want to get to a place where you know, individual communities disconnect from the grid and become completely independent of it. That's been a vision um, that's been around for some time, um, but actually it makes the decarbonization um, effort more more costly uh, for everybody because you know, at times when when you have excess generation, you want to feed that into the wider energy system. And when you need to import electricity, um, well, you ideally want to do that as well from, from other places where there's excess. Uh, therefore, the interconnectivity is very important in all of this. Yeah, you, I, I guess if, you, if everyone turns into a silo, you lose those economies of scale what makes stuff more efficient. You've mentioned a few times about um, electric vehicles and the potential for electric vehicles to be battery storage, especially for these like uh, local kind of energy grids. As far as I'm aware, there's not enough rare earth elements in the world to like replace all the cars one for one for electric vehicles. So is there much work on, and you might not know about this, apologies, Jan, I've not done my research, but is there much other research in the world looking at moving away from like lithium and other rare earth earth mineral based batteries that could be scaled up in a timely manner or is it going to be a case of this is going to roll out anyway and the kind of the built-in injustice with how those minerals are harvested it's just going to be kind of an externality if we go down that route well i think that there, there are promising technologies out there it's not my speciality as you as you say um but there, there are certainly other battery technologies that could replace um you know lithium um, in, in the long run, but in the short term, I don't think um, yeah, that, that, that is, that is going to happen. You know, it would take some time. Uh, and most of the, if not all of the electric vehicles that will be rolled out over the next few years will rely on, um, on largely lithium um, for, for, the, for the batteries. And clearly there are issues around um, yeah, how we mine um, uh, those resources. 
um, and the wider environmental and social impacts of that. So it's also very important to think about recycling and repurposing um, you know, old batteries. And my understanding is that there is significant innovation happening with some um, uh, you know, factories being able to now extract most of the lithium um, and, and the other um, materials from, from batteries um, that could be recycled. So that, that is very promising. Uh, and we need to make, you know, that, that needs to be something that is put front and center of this transition. Um, but clearly there are, there is a cost to this as with any technology. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think that we need to, we need to be aware of um, even, you know, even wind um, and solar, you know, there is an impact on the environment. There is a resource um, that is needed um, uh, for, for all of this. And, and that has this environmental and social cost associated with it. So I think another important focus is to not just think about replacing you know, all the existing cars with electric cars, um, reducing car ownership, reducing the number of trips people take um, in cars is very important as well. And we, we should not lose focus um, yeah. uh, on yeah. that. And, and there's a real opportunity um, to, to do that. You know, the exciting new models of um, shared ownership, um, uh, car clubs um, and the, you know, the systems become easier to use, uh, cheaper and becoming more widespread. Um, so I, I, I'm by no means an advocate of just replacing all the existing cars with electric cars. I think we need to minimize car travel, minimize car, car ownership, but then the remaining car fleet that we have um, needs to move towards being fully electric in the most sustainable way forward that is possible. Let's try and have a bit of a positive thing because um, it, it can be hard sometimes working in kind of climate and the environment to try and find a nice way to talk about stuff. Uh, it's COP26 as we speak. I believe it's day three of COP. Um, has there been any announcements from it that have brought you hope? Have you seen anything that's made you kind of feel more positive about the situation and the trajectory of humanity? Um, do you have any thoughts from COP so far? Well, um, it, I mean, COP is, I've, I have a bit of a difficult relationship with COP, I have to say. Um, uh, I've, I've always been rather um, skeptical of, of bold announcements and targets for the simple reason that um, as someone who works uh, you know, in the weeds of policy and regulation on the ground, um, there's often a disconnect. So mm. you, you, can, you can have a very ambitious carbon reduction target um, that is you know, in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years time. Um, but if the policies um, and the regulations on the ground actually don't deliver on that, um, then um, it, it's difficult to see what the point is of having such yeah. targets in place yeah. in the first place. Yeah. Um, having said that, I think what is clear that the I think the urgency um, with which we have to tackle the climate crisis, um, you know, the the discussion that is now not so much anymore about reducing emissions by sixty percent, seventy percent, eighty percent. But actually, 100 mm. um, percent has changed, um, and that is very positive. Uh, you know, many countries signing up to phase out coal um, is that is a positive step, a very important step. Is it going fast enough? It no, it's is. not. It but is. yeah, it, it's it's a good step in the right direction. Um, and having more ambitious commitments by governments, um, you know, can only be positive. Um, I think that what is important is that we then pay a lot more attention how that target is actually being delivered on. And one thing that I um, I always felt was we were missing with the discussion is that it's it's too far focused on on targets. It's too much focused on is net zero the right framing? Yeah. You know, is is twenty fifty soon enough? Um, can't we move faster? Um, but we forget in that discussion that um, targets in and of themselves don't deliver 
re-election. No. Um, no. Uh, you know, and that is hard. Uh, you know, shifting um, uh, our economy away from fossil fuels is really hard and difficult. Uh, and establishing a target, announcing a target, that is easy. Um, and I, I would hope that the climate movement um, is focusing much more on real climate action that is not just you know, targets and citizens' assemblies, but really concrete action on the ground. Um, I mean, and, you know, we can discuss about the methods of insulate Britain all day long, but I think um, you know, it's it's concrete things like that. You know, we've got to insulate the building stock. Mm. We have to move away from just accepting that we have inefficient, leaky homes uh, and, and and just believe that is something we can, we can live with. Um, so I think those are the kinds of things I would like us to discuss a lot more um, in addition to those high-level announcements and yeah, targets, yeah, yeah. yeah. So to follow follow up on that, and you've been, um, you know, you've been working with governments for, for a while. The the UK government itself, you know, it's been a conservative-run government for the last eleven years. Do you think government and Whitehall at the moment, like, has the institutional knowledge to work on projects of this scale? You know, it's the kind of um, what Marina Matsukata talks about as like, you know, uh, the like moonshot economics, like pushing the entire country in one direction to make sure something's happened. You know, we've had a reliance on market based approaches for a long time ago, a long time, you know, and I think some of Sunak's announcements are very still much market driven, lots of kind of carrot and stick kind of policies. Do you think that's enough? The other question is, is the idea of going back to a fully state driven version of events um, unrealistic in a time frame. That's a hard question. Um, <laughs> I, I think the um, clearly the current the, you know the current policy uh, landscape is not ambitious enough. There's not enough um, in there. I mean, you can look at what the Committee on Climate Change is regularly doing, comparing policy ambition in each of the sectors and what's already um, being being um, delivered in terms of real policy. Um, action and there's always a very significant gap um, in most of the sectors, not in all of them, but in most of the sectors, there's a gap that is quite sizable. Um, how to bridge that? Um, I mean, ultimately, I think um, it's got to be a combination of different approaches. Mm. Um, yeah. uh, I, it, it will be difficult um, to simply rely on um, uh, you know regulation forcing people um, to stop buying the products that they currently want to buy. Um, I think there needs to be a credible alternative for them to do that. Otherwise, politically, it's very difficult. I mean, stick with the example of the heat pump. Um, you know, if you just force people uh, to pay multiple times more for the heating system, mm -hmm. that's going to be very difficult politically for any political party to survive. Um, so you will need to think about ways of making them affordable, bringing down the costs, um, uh, which which will happen ultimately with scaling up but also putting enough uh, uh, funding behind it. And I think that's where um, currently I'm concerned, especially about low-income households mm. um, who might be the last to switch and might be stuck with um, expensive fossil fuels if we see the cost of gas going up um, and also an infrastructure that will need to be decommissioned at some point. Uh, you know, the cost of that, um, will that sit with the last customers? Will those customers be those on the lowest incomes? Um, so those are the things that worry me um, about this. Um, so I think we need to um, you know, think about the transition uh, also from that angle. You know, For people who have no access to capital, how are they going to be able um, to make the changes that we want them to make? Uh, and that is, I think, where there is a huge role for public uh, funding, for direct public support, 
um, and and a role for the state to mm. come in. You know, this is not something the market will simply deliver. What the market will deliver is to focus mainly on customers uh, with access to capital, uh, who are well educated, uh, who can take advantage, um, you know, of um, uh, you know, grant programs like the one that's just been announced. And we have seen that before. I mean, when you look at the history of you know, the feed-in tariff, renewable um, uh, electricity generation technologies such as solar, um, the take-up has been highest in, in wealthier households. Yes. Um, yes. And, and there's a danger that we just uh, repeat that again. Uh, and I think there's a real need for much more dedicated support for low-income households in this area. I, th I think you make a really good point there, actually, because, you know, if we get 10 years down the line and it is just, you know, the, the poorest in our in our country who are still, you know, having to use, like, if, if the prices haven't changed, if they're still fossil fuel-based, there's definitely a potential for, like, a politics of resentment to be built around those people because they're the only ones who are actively still, you know, endangering the planet. And that is a scary prospect. So, yeah, interesting. And that doesn't even begin to factor in the fact that half of the world's fossil fuel assets could become worthless by 2036. <laughs> so even if, even if the whole UK was, you know in its green fortress was fine you know that there's billions of people around the world who might be totally fucked as a result of fossil fuels becoming worthless yeah and we've covered so much and i think that would be a great place to wrap up we've loved having you on the show if you've ever got research or ideas you'd like to come back onto the show you're more than welcome we thank you for your time on a friday afternoon and hopefully see you soon it's a pleasure thanks for having me So it's time for that part of the show where we give recognition to the world's healers. Jan, have you got a shout out this week? Yes, I have a shout out to my colleague, uh, Louise Sunderland, who relentlessly works on the uh, fair or the just transition. You know, she cares deeply about equity issues um, in all of this. Um, and uh, she's doing some really important work in this area. So anyone who uh, wants to follow someone who talks eloquently about equity and the just transition, follow Louise Sunderland. My shout out this week goes to Ellie Radcliffe and Laura Williams of Clez and Carbon Co-op respectively. They're, we've documented their work on the Retrofit Get In video before, but this particular shout out goes to them for the Community Wealth Building Energy Transition Toolkit that they've just produced on Oldham Council and Oldham Energy Futures. It's a really, really interesting piece of work on how the community wealth building framework can be applied to the energy transition. And I'd recommend everyone have a read of it. We'll put it in the show notes. So well done to those two. And we'd be great to get them on the show to talk about it. So thank you to everyone for listening to the show and to all those fighting for a better world. We say we love you, we appreciate you, and we hope you join us next time. Goodbye. Bye. We'd like to thank all our supporters on Patreon, with a special thanks to Barbara Burke, Guillermo Mund and Angela Brown. If you're enjoying the show and want to help it grow, but not in an infinite ecological disaster kind of way, head to patreon.com forward slash mcrgndpod.